The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, let's please take our Bibles uh, today and turn again to Paul's first epistle to Timothy, chapter 1. And we'll pick up with the reading at verse 12 again today. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your holy word today and we are very much aware of the fact that we are in great need of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we desire that your word would be understood by us and that its truths would penetrate deeply into our hearts. And we know that this does not happen apart from the ministry of the Spirit with the word. And so we come as a congregation and as a pastor and We pray that you would grant the Holy Spirit. We plead the promise that you have made in your word that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so we come in Christ's name and we ask. And again, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a real joy recently and in past years, uh, to hear the testimonies of those who are about to be baptized. Uh, Their testimonies to what God has done in their lives through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And though no one's experience is exactly the same, different circumstances, uh, different uh, backgrounds, some converted suddenly and dramatically, others it's been more of a gradual awakening who are unable to pinpoint the exact moment when they first believed and were converted. Some saved out of the world, some having been nurtured from their childhood in the context of a Christian home. There are many differences, but their faith is the same, and the object of their faith is the same, and what God has done for them and what God has brought them to is the same, and they are all testimonies to God's amazing grace. We often sing that hymn. In fact, we sang it last week. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But, but what is it that makes grace so amazing? What makes it to be such a sweet sound 
in the Christian's ear. Indeed, there is a sense of wonder and amazement that's one of the marks of genuine Christian experience. But what is it that makes grace so amazing to the true Christian? Well, remember the next line in that hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's the awareness of our great sinfulness. Awareness that comes in seeing ourselves in light of God's holy law. An awareness that's produced by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. An awareness that we are utterly unworthy and we don't deserve anything from God but hell. But that in spite of what we are, God in his mercy has saved us for Christ's sake. We have been freely forgiven and by his spirit we have been changed and made new. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And sadly, the lyrics of this hymn by John Newton have been changed in some cases to read, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. Well, there is indeed a grace that strengthens us, but that's not what Newton was talking about. He's praising God for the grace that saves us. And that saves us from what? from our wretched condition as lost sinners. Sadly, we live in a generation in which those words, a wretch like me, are offensive and distasteful and seem over the top. Well, this is an attack on our self-esteem. We are nice people who've made some mistakes perhaps, but wretches? We just need a little help to overcome our dysfunctions or to put a little polish on our otherwise good intentions of heart. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. That's okay. We can go with that. But no, my friend, you know nothing of God's grace. Nothing about it at all. Unless you know yourself to be a wretched sinner in God's sight. Grace may be a word that you've heard. Perhaps you can even properly define it. But for those who have been made aware of their sinful condition and have been rescued from it, it's much more than that. It's the most amazing, astonishing, wonderful thing in the entire universe. Well, this is precisely how the Apostle Paul felt when he thought about himself and his own salvation. As we pick up this morning where we left off in our study of 1 Timothy At the beginning of this chapter, I remind you, Paul addresses the problem of certain false teachers who were being a nuisance in the church there, and among a number of characteristics that marked their false teaching was an abuse and misuse of the law, verse 7. And at that point, Paul goes on to say something more about the law and its proper use and function in verses 8 to 11. Then as he wraps that up, He mentions at the end of verse 11 that the right use of the law is according to the glorious gospel committed to his trust. Well, this sets him off now to say something more about the gospel in our passage this morning. And it's a wonderful, beautiful, glorious passage that we have before us today. It contains within it one of the most beautiful gospel summaries in the entire New Testament. And that that was the focus, if you were here, of the message last week. We focused on verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And again, our focus last week was on opening up this wonderful statement. But today, I remind us that this statement 
It's couched within the center of a passage in which Paul is breaking forth in wonder, praise, and gratitude to God for how his own testimony and his own salvation are a great example of this truth that's set forth in verse 15. And it's a very personal passage. Paul here is opening up his heart to us. This is not merely some cold, calculated statement of doctrinal facts, although there's a good deal of doctrine here. It's not someone with a kind of sophisticated air of personal detachment discussing the fine points of philosophical speculations or some egghead theologian who has a head knowledge of the truth but a heart that's never felt the power of the truth in his own soul. No, this is a man who is deeply affected and moved to the very depths of his being, a man who is amazed at the grace of God in his life and is seeking here to articulate his sense of profound gratitude and wonder that a man like him should be saved and be entrusted with the gospel ministry. Because as he says at the end of verse 15, when he thought realistically about himself, he saw himself as the chief of sinners. Not merely to have been the chief of sinners, he uses the present tense. Not of whom I was, but of whom I am chief, even now, even after he's been saved and profoundly changed by the grace of God as he thought about himself and he looked into his heart and all the remaining sin that was still there, he still saw himself as the chief of sinners. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me was Paul's testimony. So it's not surprising that by the time he reaches verse 17, he actually breaks out into song. Whether he was actually singing as he wrote it, I don't know, but he gives vent to his feelings with these words. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, as I try to open up this passage this morning, there, there are various ways that we could approach it. We could go phrase by phrase in chronological order, working our way down through the passage. That's one, one way, but I think for preaching purposes, it would be easier for you to follow if I just simply divide this up according to the main lines of emphasis that are woven throughout the passage as a whole. And that's, that's what I'm going to do under three headings in this order. First, Paul speaks in this passage about the wicked person that he was before his conversion. Two, he speaks about what made the difference or how he was saved. And three, he also speaks of what the grace of God had made him in spite of what he had been. So first of all, as we look at our passage today, Paul gives testimony to the wicked man that he was before his conversion. After thanking the Lord in verse 12 for putting him into the ministry, in verse 13, he speaks about the man he used to be. He says, although, in other words, God gave to me this great privilege, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Paul says, you know that list that I gave, up in verses, gave you up in verses 9 and 10? The lawless and insubordinate, the ungodly, the unholy, the profane, and so on and so on. I used to be in that list. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Paul, Paul never forget, uh, forgot what he once was, what he was when the grace of God found him. 
And he's not exaggerating when he describes his former life in this way. That's the kind of man that he was. First, he was once a blasphemer. Now, this word describes a person who speaks evil about God. Abusive, denigrating words of disrespect for God. Now, in Paul's case, remember, he had been a Pharisee, a very uh, religious, very strict in his behavior, but his blasphemy was that he spoke evil of Jesus Christ. He denied Christ. He was fanatically opposed to him, and he even tried to force others to blaspheme him. He tells us in Acts 26, 11, speaking of Christians, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. He also describes himself here as a persecutor. And indeed, he was in the most violent and aggressive manner. Again, remember, before his conversion... He was one of those Pharisees we kept learning about in the Gospel of Luke, and he was an extremely zealous Pharisee. In fact, his zeal for the traditions of the fathers came to expression in a very violent way. As Paul says in Philippians 3, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul had rejected the moderate policy of Gamaliel toward Christians, Gamaliel, Gamaliel, Gamaliel his teacher, For him, there could be no compromise with these people. He hated them. And he was determined to do all that he could to stamp out this new faith, even to the point of putting Christians to death. We first see him at the stoning of Stephen back in chapter 7. We were just reading that last week uh, in our morning reading. Paul, Saul, his Hebrew name, Paul's his Roman name, Saul, Paul, was there, remember. Luke tells us in chapter 7, verse 58, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then he tells us a few verses down. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And then after this, in chapter 8, we're told, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Paul almost single-handedly tore apart the church in Jerusalem. The whole church was scattered by his campaign of terror and repression. Elsewhere, he tells us in Acts 26, Indeed, I thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This also I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the high priests, uh, chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." He shut them up in prison. Some were put to death, and he hunted them down, even traveling to foreign cities to find them. You know, when when you see those awful pictures and uh, those old films of the death camps and of those suffering, emaciated people under Nazi Germany, well, when you see that, think about the Apostle Paul. Think about Paul's campaign of persecution against Christians. He was like a Nazi, full of hatred toward Christians, determined to lock them up and to wipe them out. He also describes himself here as an insolent man. Now, we don't use that word insolent very often, but it's an attempt here in English to translate a very strong Greek word that speaks of a person who in arrogance and pride wrongs and hurts others just for the sake of hurting them. Someone who finds pleasure in deliberately humiliating others. 
publicly treating someone in a way that is insulting and humiliating and violent. In other words, we can say it this way. He was a sadistic bully. That's the kind of person Paul was. A callous, arrogant, wicked man who found sadistic pleasure humiliating and inflicting pain on others. Paul's not proud of this. It grieves him. He's just telling the truth. This is what I was. And dear friends, let us learn from this. Here we're reminded that even the most desperate and wicked of sinners, indeed, indeed even the most committed opponent of the gospel, is not beyond the hope of being converted. Paul was an example of the kind of person no one would ever expect to become a Christian. In fact, when he was converted, you may remember, even the church at Jerusalem was suspicious at first, and they wouldn't even let him join the church. They could already believe it. They refused to receive him, and Barnabas had to come along and to vouch for him. He was a proud, arrogant, violent man, a blasphemer, a hater of Christ, a hater of the church, a hater of Christianity. He was determined to spare no cost, to do all within his power, to put an end to it. This is the kind of person that no one expects to be converted. His opposition is too deep. Too much of his life and his self-identity are bound up in the way he is and what he's believed and what he stood for for all of these years. He's taken such a public stand against the gospel. For this man to be converted, it would be, it would be like if, if Osama bin Laden had got converted to Christianity or Richard Dawkins getting converted. Things like that don't just happen. Well, God wants us to see by the example of Paul that things like that can happen and do happen. He wants us to see that even the most unlikely people, those you would least expect, even people like that can be converted and have been converted and can become eminent servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one of the main lessons of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul tells us that this is one of the reasons that God saved him. He tells us that his conversion, among other things, was for your sake. And mine that we might have hope. Listen to what he says in verse 16. He said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Verse 15, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And then he says, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him, For everlasting life. In other words, Paul's conversion is intended by God to be an encouragement to others to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. It's intended to show you, to make very vivid to you, the long suffering of the Lord Jesus. That no one is beyond hope. If you're lost this morning, Jesus wants you to know that you can be saved. It doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been. Or who you've hurt or dragged down with you along the way. It doesn't matter. Whatever mess you may have made of your life up to this point, if Paul can be saved, you can be saved. If you only repent and come to Christ for mercy. Because Christ, by his suffering and death on the cross, his agony, his pains, as he endured the wrath of God poured out upon him in the sinner's place, he has paid the debt that God's justice demands. He endured the wrath we deserve in the sinner's place for all who look to him for mercy. So there's no reason that you, like Paul, 
can't be saved. And dear Christians, Paul's conversion should be an encouragement to us not to lose heart when it comes to those lost loved ones and family members that we're praying for. It may seem like a waste of time to pray for that person, but it's not a waste of time. Christ can save them. The one minute they may be running headlong into their sin, the very next minute they may be on their face crying out as Paul on the road to Damascus, Lord, what will you have me to do? It can happen that quickly and that unexpectedly just like it did with Paul by the sovereign grace and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us now to our second heading. Paul not only speaks of what he once was in this passage, secondly, he speaks of what made the difference. What made the difference in how he was saved? And there are three key words here. The words mercy, grace, and Christ, or Christ Jesus. First, verse 13. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. I obtained mercy because of God's mercy that I have been saved. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, when he says because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, don't misunderstand him here. He's trying to make excuses for himself. He's not arguing that he somehow deserved to be forgiven. God forgave me because I wasn't really at fault, because I was ignorant. No, he's simply acknowledging that he was a lost man. He was, he was in darkness. He was lost through and through. I was spiritually ignorant and unbelieving. I'm guilty. I should have known. I should have believed. There's no excuse for my actions. Though at the same time, I was spiritually blind to who Jesus really is. I acted in ignorance and unbelief, not like the apostate who knows and is convinced but deliberately rejects and attacks Christ and the gospel with his eyes wide open. No, like the lost world around us, I was spiritually blind. And under the grip of unbelief, therefore, though lost and justly condemned, I wasn't cut off by God, and I obtained mercy. You see, as long as there is breath, dear friend, there is hope. But that hope is not in us. It's not something that we can do to make ourselves right with God. No, our only hope is God's mercy. Your only plea, like the tax collector in our Lord's parable, is God have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then we have the second word, the word grace. Verse 14, he goes on to say, and the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now the translation here doesn't really capture this. It's hard to capture in English. The verb translated exceedingly abundant, it's a compound word made up of the Greek word for above or over and the word greatly abound. It's a very intensified form of expression. It has the sense of overabounding and overflowing. And what was it that was overabounding and overflowing like a river into Paul's life? It was the grace of our Lord with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Our Lord's amazing grace was like an overflowing river which was poured out upon him. And this grace brought him into a certain sphere described as faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. In other words, God's grace poured out upon him, brought with it and produced in him faith. Faith in Christ and love. Love for Christ and for his people, the very people he had hated before. 
And what produced this tremendous change? It was the mercy and the grace of the Lord. Mercy and grace, two of the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. As another has put it, God in his mercy did not give Paul what he deserved. Instead, God in his grace gave Paul what he did not deserve. You see, one way we can think of the two is mercy speaks of God not giving a person what he deserves, eternal hell. Grace takes us a step further, and it speaks of God giving to a person what he doesn't deserve. He gives us a free and full forgiveness. He gives us salvation. He gives us a new heart of love and devotion to Christ and to his people, and eternal life as a free gift to those who don't deserve it, but who deserve just the opposite, mercy and grace. There's no other explanation for Paul's salvation or for anyone's salvation. There's no human explanation. Paul can never do this for himself. He can never do this in himself. He can never do this to himself. He can never deserve it. He can never earn it. He can never produce this change in his life by his own efforts or his own willpower. The only explanation is that he obtained mercy from the Lord. The sovereign mercy of God and the grace of the Lord was poured out upon him in abundance and that grace produced and was experienced in connection with faith and love in union with Jesus Christ. You see, that, uh, this grace was not the reward of faith. It's the Lord by his grace that produces faith in Christ, in the heart. And in Christ, that same grace always produces love for Christ and it makes us new and it gives us new desires and new affections. This was not only true of Paul, this is true of everyone who has truly been saved by the grace of God. And remember, my dear friends, grace is not an abstraction. It's not a substance that's poured into our lives. It's a person. It's the undeserved, unmerited activity of God by the Holy Spirit. As Paul describes in similar language in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown into our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's all of grace from beginning to end. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true, but I was found of thee. And this leads to the third word, Christ, or Christ Jesus. How is it that God can show mercy to sinners and pour out his grace into our hearts and into our lives? How can he do that for sinners like you and me who deserve his righteous wrath? How can he remain just and holy and still save us. Christ, Jesus, is the answer to that question. Verse 15, Christ Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners. Think of grace this way. You may have heard the acrostic. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ came and he suffered all of the intense agony of the wrath of God for all of the sins of all of his people that was poured out upon him that we deserve. He paid the debt that we all owe for all God purposed to save 
Because of Christ, what he accomplished, God remains just, and yet his mercy and his grace is poured out upon us. That grace found Paul and opened his blinded eyes and humbled his proud heart and revealed to him the Lord Jesus and all of his glory as the only Savior who came to redeem us. And Paul believed. And this is true, though the circumstances are different in all of our cases. This is true with, with us, many of us who are sitting here today. Paul was united to Christ by faith and that faith also in union with him produced love where before there was bitterness in his heart and hatred in his heart. He was a new man. So what made the difference in Paul's life? God's mercy and grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone. So Paul speaks in this passage of the wicked man he once was. He tells us what made the difference and how he was saved. And then thirdly, he tells us in this passage what the grace of God had made him in spite of what he had been. God in his grace had not only saved Paul, he had also enabled him and called him to be a minister of the gospel. Verse 13. Excuse me, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer and so on. Now, this is even more amazing, okay? Okay, I can accept that God saves people who are blasphemers and persecutors and insolent and immoral and ungodly and guilty of every kind of sin and sinful life that we could even describe or think of. Okay, people like that can be saved. But after that, they just need to keep their mouth shut and sit in a corner somewhere full of shame. They're not worthy to be involved in Christian service and especially to be in the Christian ministry. No, this was not the case with Paul and it's not the case with anyone here today. The same grace that saved Paul also called and equipped and enabled him so that he was counted faithful and was appointed to the gospel ministry. The blasphemer became an apostle. The persecutor became a preacher. The insolent man became a faithful man and a loving man and an eminent service, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's what the grace of God does. God not only saves us, he makes something wonderful and beautiful out of our lives. And there's another very important lesson here. I want you to listen to me very carefully. The example of Paul reminds us, and it's intended to teach us, that what really matters if you're a Christian is not what you once were, but what you are now. It's not what you once were that really matters. It's what you are now by the grace of God. Now that's very simple, and it's so obvious, but how difficult it is to see sometimes when the devil or His emissaries attack us when he attacks you with vain regrets, seeks to depress you and discourage you because of what you once were or what you once did, the many years that you wasted before you became a Christian, the missed opportunities, the awful sins, or perhaps vain regrets about the past years of your life even since you became a Christian. Years, perhaps, that were spent in a state of great 
immaturity in which you did so many foolish, stupid things and were ignorant of so many important truths and you find yourself dwelling on these things at times and fixated upon them. The devil, as it were, throws them in your face and you begin to wallow in vain regrets. Or perhaps it's some particular sin in your past. You've repented of it, but the devil keeps holding it before you. You can't seem to get away from it. Something terrible, something awful that you once did or you once said and it keeps haunting you and tormenting you and making you miserable. How could I ever be so foolish? And you become paralyzed in your Christian life. Don't you think Paul was sometimes tempted in this way? As he thought about all the terrible things that he had done, as he could see in his mind's eye the faces of those people that he persecuted, some of which he put to death, as he could hear their children crying as he ripped them from their homes, both husbands and wives and men and women, as he could remember the stones pelting down on God's servant Stephen and the blood gushing from his head and from his body? Don't you think he was sometimes tempted to just wallow in misery and vain regrets? It's true that Paul often thought about his past, He refers to it several times in his epistles. It grieved him to think about it. He regretted how he had wasted so many years. He deeply regretted all of the awful things that he had done. But listen, here's what I want us to see. Paul didn't spend the rest of his life in a state of depression because of it. He regretted his past, but he wasn't paralyzed by it. And this is why Paul understood what we must understand, that if you're a Christian, what really matters is not what you once were, but what you now are. You see, it's not that we should forget our sins completely. Paul never forgot. But it's the way we remember that's important. It must never be in a way that leads you, leaves you in a state of spiritual depression or paralyzes you in the present. When that happens, you're just multiplying the negative effects of that sin. No. But there are ways that we can remember our sins that are proper and are good for us. For example, Paul remembered his sins in a way that kept him from pride. When we remember what we once were, And even when we know what we are now in many ways, the sin that is still there in our hearts, if we remember it and we think about it in a way that keeps us humble, that's a good and a right way to think about it. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, before his conversion he lived a wicked, immoral life as a captain of a slave ship, even raping slave women in the hull of the ship. He was a very wicked, ungodly man. And when he was converted to Christ and appointed to be a preacher of the gospel, he wrote a text in large letters and he fastened it to the mantelpiece in his study where he could not fail to see it. He read this. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. And the Lord thy God redeemed thee. He didn't want to forget what he was. 
and what the Lord had done for him, but he didn't remind himself of his past in such a way to wallow in despair or to say, it's no use, I can never serve the Lord, but it was to keep him humble, you see. It's also a good remembering of our sins. When we remember them, to keep our hearts warm with gratitude and love to our Savior. This is what we see Paul doing here in our passage. He remembers his sins, but not to bring him to despair, but in such a way that he is filled with gratitude for God's grace. His heart is warmed, it is stirred up with wonder, love, and praise to God for his great love and mercy that have been poured out upon him. And again, that's a good way to remember and to think about your sins, dear Christian. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin once wrote a letter to his son in which he said, when I was threatening to become cold in the ministry and when I felt Sabbath morning coming and my heart not filled with amazement at the grace of God or when I was making ready to dispense the Lord's Supper, do you know what I used to do? I used to turn up and down among the sins of my past life. He's talking about his mind, turning them up and down, his mind. The sins of my past life. And it always came down again with a broken and contrite heart ready to preach as it was preached in the beginning, the forgiveness of sins. Notice he doesn't say that before he preached. He would think upon the many sins of his past life and say, wait a minute, I can't do this. Who do I think I am? No, he used the memory of his sins to move him afresh with a sense of amazement at the grace of God, to make him able to preach the forgiveness of sins as a man who knew and freshly felt in his own soul how precious that forgiveness really is. He goes on, I do not think I ever went up the pulpit stair, that I did not stop for a moment at the foot of it and take a turn up and, do- up and down among the sins of my past years. I do not think I ever planned a sermon that I did not take a turn around my study table and look back at the sins of my youth and all my life down to the present and many a Sabbath morning when my soul had been cold and dry for the lack of prayer during the week. A turn up and down in my past life before I went into the pulpit always broke my heart, my hard heart. It made me close with the gospel for my own soul before I began to preach it to others. Again, brothers and sisters, this is the right way to remember your sins. My point is we must never remember our past sins in a way that ruins our present life as Christians and our present service to the Lord that leaves us hopeless and depressed in a way that paralyzes us and hinders us in the now. When you do that, my friend, you're listening to the devil. And your own unbelieving heart. But remember your sins. Yes, but in a way that keeps you humble. And all the more grateful for what Christ has done for you. In a way that motivates you to be up and and, uh, to uh, make up, as it were, for lost time. By serving him now with all all of your heart and all of your time and all of the energy that God gives to you. That's the way Paul remembered his past sins. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 quickly. this is what he says beginning in verse 9 Paul's again humbly reflecting on his past 1 Corinthians 15 9 
For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So I'm just going to go kind of sit in the back of the church and just sort of, you know, with a, you know, a mark on my forehead and do nothing. No, he doesn't stop there. I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, the grace of God, I am what I am. It doesn't matter what I was. What's important is what I am. That's what Paul's saying. I am what I am. My dear friend, one of the glorious things about the Christian gospel is that we don't have to waste our lives in bondage to our past. Some of you guys know I like to go trout fishing. Usually I go up North Carolina trout fishing when we go on vacation and I go deer hunting in the fall, which I'm getting ready to do soon, but I like to trout fish. And you know, I don't get to do it very often. So here I am, let's imagine, I'm in the river, it's a beautiful day, I've been catching some trout, and all of a sudden my line gets tangled up. And if you've ever been fishing, you know that your fishing line can get really tangled up sometimes. And here it is, it's this big mess. I only have a certain amount of time to fish and it's going to be dark and I don't get to go again for another year. So what do I do? Well, I can sit down on a log or on a rock somewhere and I can try to untangle all that line, right? And it could take me all day and I get no fishing done. What's the, what's the best thing to do? Pull out the tangled line, cut it, pull out fresh line, tie your hook and keep fishing, right? Right? you see, one of the wonderful things about the gospel is we can do that when it comes to our lives. Why? Because the gospel is the good news of how Christ has dealt with my sins. He's taken all my sins. He's taken all my past and all of my failures upon himself. And those sins have been punished in him upon the cross. The past has been blotted out. And what I was doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is what I am. And we Christians, we must never look at any failures or sin in our past life, whether it's before or after we were converted, if they've been repented of, we must never look at that past in any way except that which leads us to humbly praise and magnify the amazing grace of God that has blotted out that past and has changed us. That's what Paul did. Notice here in 1 Corinthians 15, against the backdrop of his humble reflections on his past, verse 9, he magnifies the grace of God. Verse 10, this is what I was, this is what I did, I'm ashamed of it, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, Paul knew it was all of grace to begin with. If it wasn't for God's grace, he would still be the man that he once was. He'd still be doing the same things. So when he thought about his past, instead of doing nothing but fixing his eyes there in a kind of morbid, sinful, self-preoccupation, he thought about just how marvelous the grace of God is that saved a wretch like me. And that's what motivated and moved him to love and gratitude and to zeal in the service of Christ that far surpassed many who had been in Christ long before 
him. Because he goes on and he says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. My dear friend, if you look at your past and you feel depressed by it and discouraged as a Christian, you need to do what Paul did. Learn from Paul's terrible past before he was saved that what matters if you're a Christian is not what you once were, but what you now are. I persecuted the church, but Paul doesn't stop at that. He didn't say, I've blown it. My life is a waste. What's the point in trying? We see in the book of Acts, he doesn't stay in a corner and say, I've done such terrible things and I've wasted so many years. How can I ever be anything for God? It's no use. No, Paul didn't do that. When he thought about his terrible past, what effect did it have upon him? He caused him to praise the grace of God. It moved him to labor more abundantly than they all in the cause of the gospel with the years that he still had left. That's what it did for Paul. And that's what it should do for you and for me. And here I close by directing you back to our text, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look again at verse 16. I pointed this out earlier, just briefly, but here Paul tells us something else that the grace of God had made him. God's grace had not only made him a minister of the gospel, it had made him an example for others. And here he's talking about an example for those who are yet to believe. However, he says, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering, all patience, as a pattern, an example, to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And my dear lost friend here today, Paul's salvation in his life is intended to be an example for you. An example to show you that there is hope for you. That just as he received mercy, you can receive mercy. You too can be saved. If Paul could be saved, anyone can be saved. Anyone who will believe on Jesus Christ for everlasting life. What about you, my friend? What is holding you back? This gospel, this good news is for you. Christ stands ready to save you. And I urge you, I urge you with all of my heart this morning to call upon him. Go to him. Cry to him. Oh Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Oh Lord, pour out your grace upon me with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus and save me from my sins. Reconcile me to yourself. Make me into one of your children and one of your servants. I don't deserve it. I can never earn it. All I've ever deserved is that you would send me to hell. My sins are are more than the hairs of my head. But you yourself have declared in your word that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So here I fix my hope. You alone can save me, Lord Jesus, and to you alone I look, and to you alone I trust. The Scripture says that whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. What a wonderful, wonderful God we serve. What a wonderful gospel. What a joy to be able to stand here and to preach 
this good news to sinners. What a terrible, awful thing to be blessed with the privilege of hearing this good news and to walk away indifferent and unconcerned and unbelieving and unrepentant. Some of the hottest portions of hell will be reserved for those who hear the gospel and snub their nose and walk away from it unaffected and do not repent and do not come and place themselves by faith in Christ under his feet at his disposal as his servants. As Paul did, Lord, what will you have me to do? My friend, don't walk away indifferent and unconcerned. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And we have thrown the seed, cast the seed of the word upon the soils of the hearts that are here before us. Now we cry that your spirit would water it, that it would spring forth into eternal life in the hearts of many, and that your people will be encouraged in our faith and strengthened in our faith and motivated, Lord, as Paul has taught us in Romans 12, that by the mercies of God, because of your mercies to us, that we would present our bodies as living sacrifices to you, every part of our being, to live our lives for your glory and for your praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.